This episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America is dedicated with love and respect to Dick Giordano, who died March 27, 2010, due to complications from pneumonia. Thank you, Mr. Giordano, and good afternoon. Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have joined forces to battle evil, the newest heroes joining the champions of the Golden Age. Presenting Tales of the Justice Society of America. Welcome to Tales of the Justice Society of America, episode 20 freaking one. Wow. I, yeah, I am Scott Gardner. And I am Michael Bailey. Hey, how's it going? It is going fantastic. How are you today, sir? Hey, I'm keen. I don't know why I'm so like bright eyed and bushy tailed, but I am. And that's pretty cool. And I'm ready to talk some Justice Society. As am I. As am I. Before we get to that, though, I have a quick disclaimer. Um, I screwed up. I was no, no, I did. It, it happened, you? man. I can't believe. I know it. Uh, it's a shocker, isn't it? Did, but... did did the fifth seal break? I mean, is that what's going on here? <laughs> oh wait, that came out. Ryu and the white horse you rode in on. Anyway, um, yeah, I was listening to last episode and i realized holy cow i sound like i'm just like mental or something i totally got confused yeah because last episode is when everyone figured that out (laughs) (laughs) i've never sounded mental before last episode but uh i totally got confused on showcase comics and adventure comics because we were talking something about oh it was uh that story uh that was supposed to be showcase 105 and showcase number 105 never came out. Uh, showcase ended with 104. And that story became a dead man story in adventure comics. And so we were, we were talking about showcase. And I was thinking about adventure comics. And then the two just like melded in my brain. And, and so we were talking about, or I asked you the question, what is that? You know, because you said something about Huntress. There was supposed to be a Huntress arc in showcase. And I was like, did that ever happen? And then we started talking about it. And I was like, well, maybe that was when Showcase went to the digest size or something. And then after, when I was listening back to the episode, I was like, what the hell am I talking about? Showcase never went to a a digest size. I I was confusing it with adventure. So anyway, anybody that listened to that, please do not write in. Scott is just, uh, you know, I just get the brain farts every once in a while. But anyway, sometimes I do occasionally know what the hell I'm talking about. Anyway, (laughs) stop it. (laughs) Not when you keep feeding them to me. (laughs) I want to talk about real quick. um, uh, Excuse me. Action comics. Number 484. Ah, yes. Classic issue. Yes. Now, you know, we've uh, been trying to cover 
other peripheral happenings on Earth 2 and in Earth 2 continuity as they come along in the timeline that we're covering. And one that we kind of breezed by a while ago was uh, Action Comics 484. And it had been so long since I had read this that I thought, I'm going to crack that open, take a quick peek, just see how relevant it is to what we're covering right now. So the quick and dirty on it is a gorgeous cover, by the way, by uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Beautiful, Indeed. beautiful Indeed. Written by... I love uh, that cover. Yeah, it is. It's gorgeous. This issue is written by Carrie Bates, uh, art by Kurt Swan and Joe Gaella, uh, which I absolutely love in this issue. It's beautiful. It really, uh, it looks to me like they're trying to capture the look and feel of classic Wayne Boring era Superman, and they totally pull it off. Um, I am a little bit confused, however, if this is supposed to be a flashback tale. It's never clear. It, it's At least to me, it didn't seem like they made it clear precisely when this story was supposed to be taking place. Super- I always assumed it was like around the 50s. Yeah, that's kind of how it feels. Like it, like it's a flashback tale, and it does say, when it introduces the story, and, and right in the very beginning, you realize they're pulling a fast one on you, because the cover is, for anybody who's not aware, this is the one that uh, says, you know, 40th anniversary issue, Superman takes a wife, and it shows... Superman flying with his bride, Lois Lane. You know, she's all dressed in her uh, bridal gown. And they're flying away together on their honeymoon. And you open it up and start reading. And right away it pulls a fast one saying, Whoop, wait a minute. This is not this, not, not, the, not that Superman. This is the Earth 2 Superman. And as it starts to tell the story, it says something to the effect of, you know, a long time ago or something like that. And... But it never gives, like, you know, two decades ago or anything like that. So... I have a feeling that this is going back in Earth 2 history, that this is not concurrent with what was going on in, say, All-Star Comics. However, it just doesn't make it perfectly plain. Superman appears young and virile, and uh, there's nary a gray hair can be witnessed on him. So anyway, take that as you will. The story in this one... We got this lame-ass villain, Colonel Future, and he's sick of Superman's constant interference with his schemes, and he hires the Wizard. Is, I'm sorry? That's in 484? Mm-hmm. Why don't I remember that? I mean, I remember Wizard being the bad guy. Okay, never mind. He, he, sorry. That Colonel Future guy's not in it for very much. He's okay. he's kind of the catalyst of the story, but he's not really like a big you deal. You ever have one of those moments where you hear something and you're like, what the fuck is that all about? So, <laughs> well, sorry, that, that was my senior no, moment. No, no, that's cool. That Colonel Future guy, he uh, hires the wizard to magically remove the Man of Steel from Earth forever. Superman is banished, but sometime later, Clark Kent rises Phoenix-like from the ashes. Not realizing uh, he ever even was the caped Kryptonian, Clark Kent adopts a new tough-as-nails, hard-hitting reporter persona that makes Lois Lane all hot for him. As the world ponders whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow, Lois and Clark become lovers, and eventually they tie the knot. Through a series of events... Uh, like mob assassination attempts and such, Lois figures out that her hubby is the long-missing Superman. She tracks down the now-derelict former wizard and convinces him to do the right thing and give the Earth back its greatest champion. 
The wizard complies, and his reward is to be promptly bitch-slapped by the resurrected superhero to the cheers of his adoring fans, once again proving what an asshole Superman really can be. Returning to their apartment, he finds Lois packing, and she explains that she is freeing him from their marriage vows since she knows the whole story and believes that he never would have married her if all that jazz with the wizard hadn't happened. Superman professes his love for his wife, no matter the circumstances of their marriage, and he flies her to his secret citadel where, in the shadow of Jor-El and Laura, remember the Earth 2 names are slightly different, uh, they affirm their vows according to Kryptonian wedding tradition. And, you know, I hadn't read this one in a long, long time. I dug it. It was yes. really good. It's a solid story. And uh, and it was really cool. And it kind of made me wonder, wow, why hadn't anybody ever hired this wizard dude before? Because he actually did it. You know, he did exactly what he was hired to do. You know, he was hired to get rid of Superman. And <laughs> by God, he pulled it off. The, the thing about this story that, that I have always really, really dug was the fact that this is a Superman that looked at his life and instead of thinking, I can never marry this woman because she will constantly be at, you know, in danger from my enemies and said, what the hell? Let's do it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, that is why I always, that's why really and truly outside of the, the post crisis Superman, the, the John Byrne, Mike Carlin, Roger Stern, whatever you want to call it, Dan Jurgens. Uh, I always liked the Earth 2 Superman because he's the Superman that said, I, you know, I need a life. Right. I need something beyond just catching crooks. And that doesn't make him any less responsible than his Earth 1 counterpart. In fact, it, it kind of makes his Earth 1 counterpart look like a tool. <laughs> You're right. I mean, <laughs> you know, you know that's funny you say that because subconsciously I think I realized that as a kid, too. I think sometimes I would look at the Earth 2 Superman and then look at the Earth 1 Superman and think, well, what the hell is your problem? He He's living just hunky-dory, you know, a married life, and he seems perfectly happy. And, you know, Lois actually, as we'll hear in the next story, Lois actually helps cover for him and stuff. Like sometimes mm -hmm. she actually saves his secret identity or, or pulls him out of jams and stuff. So, yeah, I I, I dug their marriage. I, I I dug their relationship and everything. Yeah, I, I love that issue, too. I liked the the Kurtzman art, too, but as with every single Bronze Age Superman story that I read, if it's got a Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover or a Neil Adams cover, I'm always disappointed with the interior art. I was prepared to be until I opened it, and it, this one has a beautiful title splash page. And, uh, and it's, like I say, it's done very much... In the Wayne Boring style, I really think it's intended to be an homage to that era. And it worked for me because I love Wayne Boring Superman. I'm really a big fan of, of that era and that depiction of Superman. So I, I liked what they were going for with that. I really enjoyed it. I also, real quick, dug up Superman number 327, which has a follow-up to Action uh, 484. It, it's uh, there's a short backup story. It's the first installation, basically, of um, what became known as Mister and Mrs. Superman. It was just a short strip that kind of jumped around different places in different books, if I remember properly. I will say right up front, 
we are not going to be covering these unless Michael wants to take the reins on this. It was fun just to see how the thing kicked off, but I don't think that they're horribly relevant to what we're covering with the tales of the the JSA. Well, mostly because they're set in the past. Right, yeah. This particular one, um, by the way, this is uh, Superman uh, 327 has an awesome cover by uh, Rich Buckler and Frank Giacoa. I hope that's how you pronounce his name, uh, of Superman versus Cobra. And uh, it's worth it just for that awesome cover. Yeah. And yeah, I, I, I only recently, well, t- two or three years ago, but uh, this was one of those last nails in the 300s that I need. In fact, I think uh-huh. I only need one more issue of the 300s, and I have like a full run from like 282 all the way to the, to the present. So That's a good story, too, because it's the one where Cobra goes back in time and snatches the Kents out of time and threatens to kill them. Uh, if Superman doesn't do his bidding or some something to that effect, I didn't actually reread. At which point, story. Superman takes Cobra and throws him into the sun. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> um, but anyway, in this backup story, uh, we get the first Mister and Mrs. Superman story by uh, Carrie Bates, Kurt Schaffenberger, uh, and Joe Gael, and it's a fairly uh, fairly simple and straightforward story. It's kind of silly. Um, it's a tale of Clark and his new bride outwitting some of Colonel Future's goons who have been uh, dispatched to rub Kent out for his hard-hitting exposés on the Colonel's gang. It's okay. It's not great and it's not horrible or anything. It's just not really my style of, of comics, really. Um, but it has a fun, late Silver Age charm to it. And it's still hard to place the exact era uh, when this is supposed to be taking place in relation to the JSA's goings on, at, you know that were coming out at the it, same time. It's not anywhere near that because Clark, by the time the All Star comics appeared, he was already editor in chief of the uh, That's right Daily Planet, and I don't remember which issue of Superman Family it was, but I remember there was a story where Clark had to compete for the position of editor with Perry White. Ah, okay. All right. So these are truly flashback tales. Yeah. I always got the sense that, you know, Superman first appeared in 1938. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's, that's when he burst out on the scene in earth two. Right. And he went through his whole world war two adventures and probably right around 1948 or so is when he was about to settle down. Mm-hmm. And and for some reason that works in the timeline because it's ten years after he's been Superman, and by that point, you know he's he's had the role for a decade, you know his relationship with Lois has matured to a certain extent, and it's time to settle down. Plus, by that point, he would have been like thirty five or so, right? So that puts them at you know at roughly like Marian age, of course, uh, Lois in particular because well, she's getting older. And uh, she probably wants to have kids, even though they never do. But still, right. that uh, I figure Lois got that Lois. Any Lois really would get married later in life, anyways. So, be interesting to look up the wizard and see if maybe his origin, like in in Who's Who or something, might shed a little light on all this, because he's shown as uh, uh, a derelict toward the end of that Action Four Eighty Four story. So evidently, he resumed a life of crime at some point 
after he brought Superman back. Maybe because Superman was such a jerk to him when he brought him back. Because the whole thing is, you know, Lois brings him in front of this crowd and says, you know, this man wants to reform and do the right thing and he's going to give us our hero back. And there's all this applause and all this stuff. And as as soon as Superman's back, the first thing he does is smack the wizard. And you're like, dude, that's not cool. You know, he didn't have to bring, he didn't have to step up and do the right thing. He could have been like, nah, screw that. I took Superman out. I'm, I'm the man, you know, but he didn't, he, he did the right thing. And the, he's rewarded with being smacked. <laughs> it's just wrong. Ah, uh. <laughs> I love it though. Ah, uh, are we ready for some, uh, some email? Yeah, let's, let's, let's jump in the emails. Feedback. All right. Run with it, sir. Run with it. Okay. I'll start us off with one from old friend to the show, Jose A. Rivera. It says, hey, guys, just finished listening to episode 17. I was very shocked, shocked, I tell you, by the revelation that the leader of the strike force was a Pemberton. (laughs) That's a fun last name to say, Pemberton. But I was wondering if anything else ever came of this. Was this picked up in the post-crisis continuity? While I'm not a fan of a member leaving every issue, with this one, I could understand why. Sylvester Pemberton had a great deal with outside of being the Star-Spangled Kid when he left Limbo, but it always seemed he used being Star-Spangled Kid as an excuse not to face it. I would love to see a story involving Superman and those flying saucers over Metropolis. Jimmy looks ridiculous with a full Grizzly Adams beard, but... <laughs> This is Earth 2, and if this is the crappiest Earth 2 counterpart we've ever seen, then count us lucky. Scott brought up a good point with the industry today. I could go on and on about my problems, but I want to stick to just a few points for the sake of brevity, so I don't go flying off the handle. I've been into comics since I can remember. For about three years now, I've been trying to buy comics on a regular basis. I usually stick with the Superman books, Booster Gold, Adventure Comics, and a few other DC titles. As I've been going to the comic store, I've had to deal with prices increasing, books constantly being delayed, and I'm sick of the editors trying to make everything more about style than substance as they look for new readership that just isn't there. I'm fed up with it. I'm sick and tired of having to pay almost $4 for a comic that takes almost four minutes to read, knowing it's being written for the trade. I'm sick of having to wait months and months for the next issue of a book because the artist took on too many jobs, or the writer accepted a movie deal for his comic and wants to cement his focus on that. And I'm sick of editors' attitudes. The editors are always telling us downloading CBR files are illegal and a detriment to the comic book industry. However, they never say anything about the raised prices or the delayed books. I wish no one, no ill on anyone, but with the way these guys act and the direction they're taking comics, if the industry were to collapse tomorrow, I would not shed a tear for them. I download CBR files and torrents because I, like a lot of us, don't have a lot of money to spend. While I miss going to the comic store every week, I've recently placed an order to Heroes Corner, thanks to Scott. I'm saving money, and in my own head, am sticking it to the editors who look down on me for being the comic fan I am. Sorry. Just had to add that. I was about to say. <laughs> Sorry for the mini rant, but you guys really gave me something to think about. I would love to hear you you two do an episode of Back to the Bins where you explain your problems with the comic industry as it stands today. But until then, I can't wait until you two tackle the JSA stories and adventure comics as those have been some of my favorite stories in the trade. And as some food for thought to you, do you think you'll be covering James Robinson's Starman run or even the Sand and Star story down the road? 
Thanks for ev- all the great work, Jose A. Rivera. Uh, yeah, we're 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 definitely going to be covering Star. Absolutely. Uh, also, to- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, dude. I didn't mean to walk over you. Oh, that's okay. It was just it's just when we get to that after the 1992-93 series, uh, Justice Society of America. Around that time is when we're going to jump into uh, Starman. So. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, if you haven't, uh, Jose and everyone else listening, um, if you want to get our, he, you know, he said something here. He'd like to hear uh, hear us do uh, a back to the bins where we explain you know, our problems with the comic industry as it stands today. I feel like we've kind of covered that territory quite a bit. But if you if you want to kind of hear it reiterated and and really get our thoughts on it, I would recommend uh, hunt up um, Walter Bonham's podcast, uh, Face the Comic Book Nation. And uh, Michael and I were both recently guests on there, and I think that we both covered that material um, very well, you know, and, and gave our thoughts on the state of the industry and where we think things are headed and all that sort of thing. So I would highly recommend those episodes. Well, there's also that special we did on Views. That's right. We talked about Superman and then ended up bitching about comic books in general right there at the <laughs> end. So, Who? Us? Never. I'm trying to be more relaxed lately. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Yeah, I, I was positively mellow on uh, on Walter's show. I'm trying. Okay, our next one is from Trench Thornton, and it's entitled Joe Staten, All-Star 71, and iPads. He says, Michael and Scott, in general, I regard Joe Staten as a great and much underrated artist. However, and perhaps it is due to the inkers he's worked with up to this point in his career... Uh, but I've not seen too much in his all-star run that really impresses me. The strength of the writing and the characters is what carries me through a lot of these issues because Staten's art from this period just uh, doesn't do it for me. My introduction to Staten came in the Brave and the Bold number 197, which, tangential to your podcast, though it may be, I I do hope you guys cover at some point. That's that one that you talked about, isn't it, Michael? The Catwoman story? Yeah, I'm sure we'll yes. get to that. Yes. Uh, I thought his art in that period and thereafter was powerful and expressive. Well, I think he was kind of new to comics, too, in this all-star stuff, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. It wasn't like his first work, but it was pretty early in his career, if right. I'm correct. Yeah, he definitely, uh, I mean, I think it's awesome anyway, but he definitely you know improves over time. Uh, with just a few lines and some black splotches, he was able to show a character uh, feeling a deep sense of regret without the whole thing degenerating into a bunch of whiny emo crying and shit. And let's face it, that's something that can't be said about a lot of Staten's peers. Hell, it's something that can't be said of a lot of pencilers today. But thus far in the all-star run, Staten's art is, in my opinion, the weakest link of the title. Oh, dude, that's harsh. And I think uh, All-Star 71 is a good representation of how not good his art was in this period. Aside from being her awkward pose and facial expression on page 9, I simply don't find his Power Girl interesting to look at beyond the obvious. (laughs) Boobs. What two reasons could you possibly be talking about? Okay. Boobs. (laughs) Boobs. <laughs> but there's a lot of solace to be had in knowing that in just a few short years, Staten would evolve into the artist I best know him to be. Since this is already kind of a Staten love fest, allow me to recommend Legends of the Dark Knight numbers 65 through 68. 
Those were written by Jam DeMatteis, uh, penciled by Joe Staten, inked by Steve Mitchell, and the story is a Batman versus Joker art. What's not to like? I'm, I don't think I'm familiar with that story. To uh, check the that story out. is called Going Sane. It was right after Zero Hour, and it is in trade paperback form. Ah, I'll have to check that out. As to the iPad, I want to say iPod, iPad representing the beginning of the end of the comics industry, I can only hope so. I have no sympathy. What the? Who the? (laughs) For who the fuck ever has run this industry into the ground? Just tell it like it is, brother. There's so much more I could say about that, but I don't want to fill up the entire episode with me ranting about how every douchebag writer in the industry today is convinced he's Alan Moore writing the next fucking Watchmen or some such nonsense. No, preach it, preach it. I love it. All I'll say is that I sometimes get the idea that some supremely arrogant comics pros want the industry to die. They go out of their way to prevent new readers from getting involved by writing such dense, inaccessible crossover stories. Uh, Would you want to be a new reader coming in in the middle of Infinite Crisis or Blackest Night? They also routinely tell older readers to piss off in the form of nonstop reboots, Superman's sucky origin, Spider-Man, shitty new day, (laughs) basically any moment in the Legion of Superheroes for the past several years, Green Lantern uh, rebirth, rather, which has uh, which was little more than Jeff Johns attempting to fillet Al Jordan. <laughs> what else is left besides extinction? The slogan for Back to the Bins is that the host, some assholes called Michael and Scott, uh, you tales of the JSA guys, would hate those pricks. We do Half- hate those pricks. We do hate them. God damn them in their show. <laughs> have been disenfranchised by the modern comics industry. More accurately, more accurately, I would say that we've been disenfranchised, disinherited, and outright disowned by the comics biz. Sooner or later, the iPad's price point will dip down to affordable levels. Uh, it can only be a matter of time until someone writes an app that will read CBR files. Apple will eventually make an iPad that has vast storage capabilities. When those things fall into place, it will be a joy to buy one and load it up with my comic book torrents. I've gotten decades long run, long runs of characters in some cases. I've got totally complete runs in other cases. I've got more back issues than I'll ever live to read. And you know what? I don't need new crap written by a hack who hasn't even mastered basic grammar, never mind the mechanics of storytelling, and penciled by some third gen third generation jim lee clone or jim lee himself running superman further and further into the ground no thanks the comics industry long ago said they don't need me soon i'll be able to return the sentiment with interest and it'll be my fucking pleasure (laughs) negative though this email has been i do love your show and all-star thanks for helping me find a new to me title to enjoy all the best and this was from Trent Thornton. Trent, I love you, buddy. This fucking email rocks, man. <laughs> I am so on board with what you're uh, what you're laying down, as the young people say, as the young folks say. What with their hula hoops and Dan Fogelberg records? <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep using that basketball reference over and over and over again. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> All righty, next up we've got one from Victor Wachter. 
His is titled The Pope and the Huntress. <laughs> I, I, I really want to buy that, that book. <laughs> <laughs> I really want the next sentence to be walk into a bar. <laughs> Ellen, oh, you're going to make Kelly, me I hardly know her. <laughs> Anyways, Victor writes, hey guys, thanks for reading my emails a couple of shows back. You can tell that I never write email with the intent of being read aloud because when you read mine last time around, it sounded totally incoherent. Anyway, the genie is out of the bottle, so I'll fig- I figure I'll keep writing. Please do. Please. My f- in my first email, I mentioned that I was confused the first time I saw the JSA, particularly by the Flash's funny hat. Scott asked if I was confused by the Pope, since he too wears a funny hat. Unfortunately, I don't think I can answer that, since I have never seen the Pope of Earth too. I, re- <laughs> I really enjoy. <laughs> Everybody's a comedian. I really enjoyed the recap of the Huntress's origins a couple of shows back. She was possibly the most interesting creation that Earth 2 gave us. By that, I mean she was one of only two heroes created specifically for Earth 2 before Infinity Incorporated. But unlike Power Girl, she was not a counterpart to any Earth 1 hero. She would... Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> no, she wasn't. Well... Sort of. Um, oh, wait, wait, she, wait. Explain. you got to explain yourself if you're going to say that. She, she's not a true counterpart to Supergirl, but she serves the same function. No, no, no. He's talking about the Huntress. Oh, How the Huntress. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. I, I'm retarded. Anyways. Mm-hmm. I'll buy that. For a dollar. <laughs> she might have been the first true legacy hero in DC Comics, even though we had all of the hero sidekicks, who we assumed might one day take the place of their mentor. She was the first one who had to operate in a world where her inspiration was gone forever, giving us a glimpse into one possible future of the Batman mythology. Well, I'm glad we're reading that in this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> her revival after Crisis on Infinite Earths always felt uninspired to me. They revived the color scheme, but little else. In fictional terms, I think that makes her more of a victim of the crisis than Power Girl was. Power Girl lost her universe, but remained herself. Sort of. The Huntress had lived an entire life before, a better life with noble parents and the inspiration of the Golden Age heroes. She lost not only her world, but her very identity. It was established an infinite crisis that the current Huntress, Helena Burton Ernie, gotta say that every time because I think it's funny, would not have been a resident of Earth-8 had the multiverse survived, but this retcon doesn't change what really happened to the character. I really felt her absence in the first issue of the current JSA run, where the team gathers all of the new legacy heroes. The Huntress was a key part of some of the most interesting stories from the All-Star Revival era and the Adventure Comics run, and her backup series in Wonder Woman also added interesting parts to the mythology of Earth-2, but today she has Priscilla persona non grata to the JSA. Even still, my biggest wish in comics is that the Huntress will someday finally come home. Mm-hmm. I know fairly little about the current Huntress, so I ask you guys, do you think Helena Bertinelli has a place in the JSA? Pre-Crisis, as Batman's daughter, it was plausible that she showed up out of nowhere, as capable and confident as the others, and could really add something to the team. While Power Girl was learning as she went along, Huntress had already had the game down, but had to struggle to prove it. I'm not sure what the unique, dynamic, post-crisis Huntress could bring to the team, or if she would even fit. What do you think? Well, you know, uh, I want to give credit where credit's due. Um, Chuck Sheffield. Hi, Chuck! And I were uh, messaging back and forth the other day. He raised a very interesting point, and I totally 
snagged what what he was uh, you know what he was throwing out there as kind of a lifeline for for this version of the character, sort of. Um, he had this idea with Batman. I mean, I, I'm not following Batman right now, so correct me if I'm getting anything wrong. But he said something about Batman is now traveling through time right now, or Bruce Wayne is. I have no idea. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't know either. But he had said something about what is you know what does that mean story potential wise for the Huntress, and I got to thinking that would be a great. It, it would almost be a little bit like when Byrne had uh, Hippolyta go back to the forties and become the the Golden Age Wonder Woman. But I really liked that. And I think that there's a you know there's story potential there if Bruce Wayne really is you know bouncing around time or whatever's going on with him time traveling, say he winds up back you know in time to a point where he could actually father the Huntress, and I would love that. I would I think it could make that character relevant again to the Batman family. I mean, she would actually be. The daughter of Batman, just like she was, you know, back in the Earth Two stories, I would totally be on board for that. And I think you could even spin a whole great big thing out of, you know, who is her mother, and uh, yeah, I, I think that 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 story's got some great potential. Because I'll be honest with you, I have never liked or warmed to the post-crisis version of Huntress. I, I think she's, uh, I think they were trying really hard. But it just has never worked for me. I, I she has no relevance. Once Chuck Dixon got a hold of her, I rather liked the character because she was constantly trying to kind of prove herself because her methods were a little nastier than Batman's. And once she got onto the Birds of Prey, I think that character really kind of found a home, which is why I don't think she would work in the JSA. I think she's very good in the team that she's on because she's still tangentially attached to the Batman family because you have Barbara Gordon on the team. But you also have Black Canary, which kind of brings the whole Gotham thing together uh, because Black Canary's mother served in the JSA. JSA's headquarters was in Gotham City. There you go. So I don't think she would work in the JSA, but that's just my opinion. I my I guess my question is is who is she in relation to Batman these days? I mean there's not any, is there? No, there there's no relation at all. Her father was a gangster that was killed by other gangsters. She witnessed the death and trained herself to avenge her father. And it has been a good 6 years since I've read the Huntress series that Joey, Joey Cavallari wrote with Joe State and artwork, as a matter of fact. Uh -huh. And I can't really remember if it was good or not. And, that, and, and I, 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 that's not to say that it wasn't. It's just I've read a crap load of comics since. And, you know, that, <laughs> that storage space has to be wiped clean every once in a while <laughs> so that new shit can come in. So at some point I'll read that. But... I just, it was a rough start for her. I think she really had a, a difficult time of it, like uh, Victor says. And I don't think she's gotten the fair shake that she deserved until Chuck Dixon and, and Gail Simone got a, uh, a hold of her to kind of make her a character. I, I can see her being made a character. I just, I still think, 
without her having ties, real ties to the Bat family, she's ultimately just a character I, I just don't care about. I mean, they they. I, I find her a, a extremely pale shadow of the the Earth Two character, which uh, you know I, I agree with Victor. I, I think she was the best thing to come out of Earth Two, you know, of this period. Anyway, Victor continues. Thanks for continuing the podcast. It's become a Saturday afternoon favorite for me, along with Back to the Bins. Been looking for you guys on Facebook, but it's hard hard to narrow down you from the search results think you could post a link to your profile pages or if you already have a link up somewhere could you tell me where to find that victor p.s you don't have to read this part aloud but for pronunciation purposes walker rhymes with doctor but i decided to read it aloud anyways because that's <laughs> the kind of guy i am um I've tried. I've tried to find how you link your profile page to anything, and I can't seem to find it. Mine links to like my login, and I don't know that Alrighty. I'm supposed to give that out. So. Alrighty, easiest way to find it. Easiest way to find Scott and I on Facebook. Go to www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. That is the main website for my other podcast, which I am getting going next week. I swear before Almighty God. And if you look on the side, the right-hand side, you'll see Facebook Views. And that is a link to the Views from the Long Books Facebook page. Go there, look at the members, find Michael Bailey and Scott Gardner, and there you go. It's just that easy. Sweet. So, and join the, join the fan page, too, by the way. Please. <laughs> okay thanks to everyone who uh wrote in and gave us feedback we love it love it love it keep it coming and now we're going to get into the episode proper and start with uh well mr michael bailey will take it away we're going to start with adventure comics number 461 now the jsa story in this was not the only story in the issue as a matter of fact you had a flash story a dead man story and a wonder woman story in fact there on the cover you have what looks to be a jim aparo cover with uh wonder girl kicking wonder woman right in the face this never happens in this issue yeah, but it's kind of hot. Just the same. It's hot, yeah, and I was looking forward to reading it. I was like, oh, ooh, these two babes are going to throw down as a chick fight. And it never happens. I was like, god damn it. I hate false advertising. While on the back, we have a beautiful JSA splash page, uh, pinup type shot, done by Joe Staten and the now late Dick Giordano. Yes. On the silence. But, um,. Inside, we have the JSA story proper, and it begins with a prologue that essentially just sets up what Earth 2 is. If you have no idea what Earth 2 is or who the Justice Society are, this sets it up. This tells you about how Superman's rocket landed earlier so that he made his first appearance in 1938, how the JSA formed in DC Special Number 29, and how... A couple decades later, a new Earth and a new continuity started up with the JSA starting up in around the 60s or so. And they show the comparison between the two. You have the two Superman, you have the two Green Lanterns, but some characters don't have counterparts like Aquaman and Dr. Fate. And I know it's jumping ahead, but that Aquaman thing is going to be rendered uh, void 
soon into All Star Squadron because yeah. it was an Earth Two Aquaman. I was going to point that out as well. <laughs> and they show like the first meeting of the JSA and the JLA, and how thus the two worlds knowingly coexist. One inhabited by the familiar Flash, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and Dead Man you have seen in these pages, and I thought that was kind of interesting because it kind of broke the fourth wall for a second. And the other by the original superheroes. These, then, are the legendary members of the Justice Society. And on the page, you have Power Girl, Superman, Hawkman, Huntress, Robin, Our Man, Dr. Fate, Flash, Dr. Midnight, Wildcat, Wonder Woman, and a really high-collared Green Lantern. If he turns his head, he's not seeing a damn thing but green material. God, that thing's high on him. What the hell? <laughs> Anyways, we get to the story proper, which is titled Only Legends Live Forever. It was written by Paul Levitz with art by Joe Staten. So I guess he was inking himself in this as well. In the JSA's danger room, for lack of a better term, Power Girl and Green Lantern are inside a sphere that is closing in on them. Green Lantern tells her not to let the sphere succeed, and Power Girl finally says she can't hold it back any longer. Green Lantern uses his willpower and with total concentration manages to break free of the sphere. Flash is rather pleased with this, especially since it proves his theory that Green Lantern's will is stronger than Power Girl's physical strength. And he proceeds to go on about this like a great big prick. Power Girl finally doesn't think they proved anything and leaves in a huff. Once she is topside, Wildcast asks if she's there to save him from TV, and she says, in a word, no. And then Wildcat says, and I quote, sheesh, women, there's just no understanding them. My old manager sure was right. Stretch always said, keep them in the kitchen where they belong. Amen, brother. Preach. Oh, wait, wait. Um, No, I, never mind. Yeah, that that's just when your wife comes into the room. <laughs> Um, we cut to Huntress in the kitchen, proving that Paul Levitz had a sense of humor, and she is making a souffle. Robin comes in and tells her he knows she is really Helena Wayne. After a quick conversation about them both being the children of the Dark Knight, Robin promises not to tell Bruce. Meanwhile, across town, a madman climbs up the trade tower and even tosses a cop out of a window when the officer tries to stop him. Once he reaches the roof, he demands to see Commissioner Wayne, or he will level every building in the city. A small group of police officers surround him, and he knocks them back with some freaky mind powers. And once again, they t he tells them to bring him Commissioner Wayne. Chief O'Hara calls into HQ and says, no lie, help. That's his big message to headquarters. Not, we have a perp on top of the World Trade Center. He is obviously uh, made a human, and we need backup now. No, the spineless bastard says help. Instead of laughing at him, the person <laughs> on the other end informs O'Hara that they have already called the JSA. This leads us into Chapter 2, War Atop the Tower. Green Lantern and Power Girl confront the man, with P Power Girl insisting that the man needs help, not a green padded cell. When Power Girl tries to calm the man down, he flips out and summons these mystical change, which wrap around Power Girl. We learn that the man's name is Bill Jensen, and with a wave of his hand, he sends Power Girl flying into the river. Meanwhile... The rest of the heroes confront him, and in quick succession, he takes each and every one of them down. We get another, bring me Commissioner Wayne, before the commissioner finally arrives, which is a good thing, because 
that was getting really old and tries to place the man under arrest as a fugitive of justice. Jensen starts ranting about the fact that Wayne ruined his reputation and unloads an energy ball onto Wayne and the cops, which is blocked by unknown means. We finally learn that Jensen believes that Wayne framed him to make himself look good as a detective on his road to being commissioner. Jensen escaped to seek revenge. And that brings us back to the roof of the trade tower. Jensen says that they can't hold him forever, but Dr. Fate, who is behind the Mystic Shield, says that he can. Fate tries to reason with Jensen, but that only makes him angrier and fires a massive bolt of energy, which knocks everyone to the ground. When the smoke clears, Jensen finds that Wayne is gone and that Gotham will pay for this trickery. Yeah, so, um... (laughs) You know, this is a really weird story. It is, but, uh... It's not bad, don't get me wrong. It's it's not like the last issue where we just kept finding problem after problem after problem with no, it. No, I, I think the problem in this story is pretty much apparent with, with Jensen himself being kind of a... He, he's kind of a doomsday, for lack of a better, you know, comparative, because he's just... He comes completely out of left field and does what he does next issue... And that was kind of my complaint with Doomsday was that I I would have rather that it be somebody known and established. But uh, we'll we'll get to that when we uh, get to our next issue coverage. But, you know, this uh, this is one of the great things about comic books to me is that because you've got the marriage of words and pictures is that sometimes one can really help shore up the other one. And in this case, the state and art is what makes this. God, this is a beautiful, beautiful story. I love that opening splash comparing the, the heroes of two Earths. That would make a gorgeous poster. Mm-hmm. I do agree. Uh, I really like that as well. You know, I'll agree with you mostly. There are a few points, and it's, and it's mostly re- revolving around Jensen himself, where the art gets kind of wonky. Uh, especially towards the end where, you know, Jensen just looks like he's just eating a lot of cheese and needs to take some uh, <laughs> some chocolate laxatives or something like that, especially on page eight of the story. He's just like, <laughs> but um, everyone else looks really cool. I, you just got to that page. I yeah, yeah, I did. And, and on page six, he looks like he has the worst overbite imaginable. I can see why he's a villain now. Like, you know, it's like you almost want his, you almost want his dialogue to be, Bring me Wayne, or I can't be responsible for what happens to your daddy. We're going to get all kinds of letters from the Overbite Association of America. Yeah, dude, as somebody who went through braces because I had a jacked up grill when I was a kid. Yeah, bring on those fucking letters because I know where they're coming from. Um God hated me. It was like God was daring someone to knock my front teeth out, like on a daily basis. But um, no, the the intro was interesting. There was there was several months between that last issue of All Star Comics and this. Yeah. So I kind of see why they went with doing kind of a retelling of of what Earth Two is all about. Because if you're a reader of Adventure Comics, which around this time was a really cool anthology title. Yes. Um. Mixed bags sometimes, but usually pretty good. The Dead Man stories I always liked, and uh, the Flash stories, surprisingly, were really good in this. 
Um, but, you know, to, to kind of bring everyone up to speed, you have this explanation in case you, you are the type of reader that just opens it up and it's like, what the hell is with Superman? Why does he look so different? Right. Staten really overstates in a good way the differences between the Superman symbols in that origin as well, which I really appreciated because that is, to me, one of the cool things about the Superman of Earth 2 is that his symbol was very different from, like, the traditional, you know, like, looking at the poster in my room right now, you know, Superman symbol. It had the the outline inside the shield. So you had a shield within a shield, which I always kind of thought was cool. No one did it, by the way, better than George Perez, but that's just, or yeah. Perez, but that was just my opinion. But, you know, Levitz tries to bring a lot of characterization into the story, and on some levels he succeeds, but he completely botches it with this danger room sequence where Flash is just an ass. Like, he's really <laughs> happy that, that Power Girl is not as powerful as his friend. And she leaves off in a huff, which makes her look kind of one-dimensional. And then that whole thing with Wildcat, it's just like, Jesus. That cracks me up. Uh, you know, the, why are these guys always in costume? And this is the the two really silly examples in this one is Wildcat. He's sitting there watching TV. I presume he's still on the mend. He's eating this bag of greasy potato chips, and he's in full costume, which means he's getting this nasty grease all over the the gloves of his costume. Yes. And then the very next sequence is Helena, Helena in the kitchen making something, and she's in full costume. And I'm like, what? You know, that... Uh, granted, she I guess she feels she has to protect her secret identities. Cause but I'm everyone assuming... knows who she is. Well, no, I don't know about that. I was just going to say, I think Wildcat at this point... Well, no, I take it back because uh, Power Girl knows who she is, too, because they had that dinner together. Um, when was that? Back in All-Star 74. So, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't know. I don't get it. That's kind of weird. Um, the other problem, and, it's, and th- that's like my only two problems with the story itself, is that we see Jensen for like four pages, and all he pretty much does is bring me Wayne. Right. Bring me Wayne. I'm going to fight a bunch of cops. Bring me Wayne. I'm going to fight Power Girl and Green Lantern. Bring me Wayne. Wayne shows up, and then we kind of get his origin, and then everyone's knocked down, and you can tell that this story was cut from a full-length issue. Yes, yeah, very much so. Because that ending is, you know, that continued next issue should say continued second page over. Right. So, but having said that, really good way to bring kind of kick up the drama and the excitement especially after the last story where you know the JSA were heroically did nothing so (laughs) (laughs) well I've got a few things I really liked in this issue and and maybe even a couple of little nitpicks but uh, right off the bat page two first panel I love that that's right from the Wayne Boring um, origin of Superman down mm-hmm. to the car and the angle that uh, that they're shown and everything. I really thought that was fantastic. Um, on page four, that first picture where where Helena is making whatever she's making on the stove is that Doctor Occult over the mantle? You know what? I, I was going to ask you about that, but I, I didn't write it down in my notes. But that kind of looks like 
either Dick Tracy stopped by and, and gave him a <laughs> gave him a picture, or that is Doctor Occult, which would make more sense than Dick Tracy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you being the big Doctor Occult fan, or at least being a fan of New Fun Number Six, I'm a Doctor uh, Occult fan. I think he's pretty he's pretty badass. I, I don't think uh, enough's done with him actually, but uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty well, sure no, that's really... supposed to be him because Dick Tracy is more yellow. Yeah, in in his color scheme, whereas this guy looks much more like uh, like Doctor Occult's color scheme. I would hate for somebody to get their hands on Doctor Occult in today's comic book climate because they would just fuck it up. Well, they, yeah, they have because I mean, every once in a while he comes back and has a one shot or a guest appearance, and most of them are to me seem out of character. But every once in a while, there's a really good one. I always liked what uh, what Roger Stern did. With the I was about to mention that yeah. that his, the the one appearance. He had right after Superman's death mm-hmm. that basically explained why he was able to come back from the dead. And then that annual, that Action Comics annual or whichever Is that annual, one of those year one stories? Yes. Yeah, yeah. was really good as well. It was. And it's, it's cool because you have Superman and Dr. Occult who were created by the same team. Right. So, you know, it's the children of Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster getting together. And magic always messes with Superman. And Roger Stern always had a good handle on on what made Superman tick. So it made sense to me that he would do a good job with Dr. Occult. And then sometimes people would just fuck him up. I mean, <laughs> now I wonder to sound angry, but I am. So I'm wondering if this story, you know, that it continues to next issue, but I'm wondering, is this the first and probably last appearance of the Gotham trade center? Cause I don't remember this before or after. It's kind of sad when you think about it, but it, it makes kind of sense that there would be like an analog to the World Trade Center, which was still relatively new when this story oh, yeah. came out. It's was, it was only about what about eight years old by this point. Oh, like I don't even think eight. it was. Yeah, I don't even think it was that old. Because what what it, what year is this? Seventy nine or something? And I think that opened in seventy one, didn't it? Did it? I thought it was. I thought it was later. You could be right. I was thinking it was even later than that, but you could be right because I was thinking that the the trade center was still relatively new in the uh, the nineteen seventy six um, King Kong remake with Jeff Bridges. But I, I don't know. I'll have to look. That I used to actually know that little tidbit of information, and I've since forgotten. So that that's worth looking up sometime. Actually, we have so many New Yorker. I mean, actually, like New York, New York. Listeners, that someone will write in and tell us, I'm sure. Groundbreaking took place on August 5th, 1966. The North Tower was completed in December of 1970. And the South Tower was finished in July of 1971. So, yeah, it was only eight or nine years old. Oh, wow. So it wasn't quite as new as I thought it was in that uh, in that movie. Um, I noticed once again... That Green Lantern gets taken out like a chump. You ever yeah. notice? I mean, he's supposed to be super power. I mean, he's one of the most powerful members of the team. And after the crisis, when Superman's retconned away, isn't he kind of like acknowledged as the powerhouse guy on the team? James Robinson was was big on that, especially in the Golden Age. Right. He he was when not to jump ahead again, but when Green Lantern shows up in that story. It is to kick some ass. Right. It is not just, I'm here to be with my buddies. It's, oh shit, things have gone really bad and I got to put this ring back on. So, (laughs) 
It's nice to see Flash remember that he's the fastest man alive, though. I thought that was pretty cool. Because, you know, this this big monster might have actually caught him a couple issues ago where, you know, he was letting mundane things like nets falling on him actually capture him and stuff. So it's pretty cool that he remembers, oh, yeah, I'm super fast. Um, but, yeah, you're absolutely right. This feels like exactly what it was meant to be, the first two chapters of what would have been All-Star Comics number 75. But still... I like it. It's a good lead up. And, you know, you're, you're kind of right about the, uh, rather, I should say you are right about Jensen and the art being a little bit wonky. And, uh, normally I really wouldn't like this style, but I, I guess it's just cause it's Staten and I, I give him a wide pass. I really just dig the guy's heart. What can I say? But you're right. His, his faces do get progressively wonkier as the, uh, the issue plays out. Well, are we ready for the uh, the second half of this story? Yes, I am. Now, this is back in the days where they didn't mind completely spoiling the uh, the story inside, <laughs> right on the cover. I love that. They don't do that sort of thing anymore. Of course, you know nowadays you, you're spoiled, you know, months in advance before the story ever actually hits the stands. But anyway. This is Adventure Comics number 462, the April 1979 issue, a great big whopping dollar comic, 68 pages, no ads from cover to cover, and uh, along with the Justice Society. You know what that means, though? What's that? We don't have yeah, any we don't ads have any to talk about. Yeah, we don't. Yeah, that kind of sucks, actually. It's going to be like for three episodes, we're not going to have any ads. Oh, uh, we'll make it up. We'll make it up somewhere. Um, but along with the Justice Society of America, we also in this issue have Wonder Woman, The Flash, Dead Man, and Aquaman. And this one sports a great cover by Jim Aparo. Um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's totally spoiling what happens within. <laughs> this reads right smack on the cover. Yeah, the, it's not subtle at all. Not subtle whatsoever. There's not a whole lot of mystery to what's going to happen. The death of Batman. Yes, you heard me correctly. The death of Batman. And it is a beautiful cover. It's uh, Batman in his coffin, fully, uh, you know, fully dressed as the Batman. And we've got uh, we've got Power Girl. We've got a sobbing Huntress. We've got Robin, Green Lantern, the Flash, Superman. And way in the background, we actually have uh, Alfred Pennyworth. Who I don't think looked this way uh, in Earth 2. I thought he was the fat Alfred in Earth 2, but I could be wrong about that. Um, anyway. Can I make one comment about the cover? Sure, go ahead. Does it look like they overdid Batman's makeup uh, at the uh, funeral home? Because he looks really pink. <laughs> That's just, but go on, sorry. I like it, though. I think it looks really sharp. Very, very sharp uh, apparel cover. I like that. I'd like to know who inked that because there's no uh, inker credits on that. The um, inside front cover is, uh, excuse me, the first page rather, is actually the beginning of this. The Justice Society gets the uh, first story treatment in this particular book. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful splash page by Joe Staten and, again, the uh, recently uh, departed uh, Dick Giordano. And it's gorgeous. And it's the title page reading, Only Legends Live Forever. Now, this piece of art was recently recreated for an upcoming issue of Alter Ego magazine, number uh, 94, as a matter of fact. And uh, I would highly recommend, um, right now, if you uh, act fast, 
alter ego number 93 is actually being solicited and number 94 will come along shortly. 93 and 94 feature a two-part series all about Earth 2, covering uh, the history of it from 1963 to 1985. Highly recommend it. Anyway, so we get into this one. Uh, Story is entitled Only Legends Live Forever, which isn't that the title from last time as well? So they're just carrying forward the same title. Uh, Writer still Paul Levitz, uh, Joe Staten on the art. And uh, okay, we begin with a two-page recap of events from last issue, which consist of Jensen ranting and railing about being framed by Bruce Wayne, calling for the commissioner and throwing the cops and JSAers about with his newfound power. Wayne shows up, protected by a bubble conjured by Dr. Fate, but Jensen's power proves too much for the good doctor, and when the smoke clears, everyone lies strewn about like ragdolls, save for Wayne, who has gone missing. This really sets Jensen off. The story resumes with Bruce Wayne having ducked over the side of the roof of the Gotham Trade Center to a ledge below. Uh, He has a little inner monologue about how Jensen is completely full of shit. And uh, he done it in Wayne's mind, and Wayne can prove it. So it was an open and shut case. Uh, But where, Wayne wonders, did he get the power? So after a pit stop at the City Museum on the 25th floor, some reflection on what a totally lousy year he's been having so far, what with the death of his wife and his official retirement as the Batman, he swipes a spare bat costume out of a display case and resigns himself to taking up the mantle of the bat one last time. Back on the roof, Jensen is still ranting like a maniac, or like me after Secret Origin number one was released. He threatens to start offing the JSAers. I thought you'd like that. He threatens to start offing the JSAers one at a time every minute till he has Wayne and starts by chucking the flash over the side. The senile speedster awakens to find himself plunging to his certain doom, but is saved by a swooshing Batman. The caped crusader deposits the Flash, who has passed out again, on a nearby ledge and climbs to the roof to confront Jensen, who is now so pissed that he started blasting the roof of the adjacent tower, spilling several hapless police officers to the street far, far below. I thought that was actually uh, pretty cool. You know, it's horrible, but wow, you know, for a comic back in this day to show, you know, police officers being thrown to their death, you know, from the top of the, uh, you know, obviously it's an analog for the World Trade Center. I thought that was pretty cool in a, in a horror kind of way. Anyway, as Batman struggles to reach the roof, the JSAers revive and lay into Jensen anew. He is still able to out, uh, to overpower them, but they've given the Batman the time he needed. The two men confront each other, and after several fiery blasts, which burn away portions of the Dark Knight's cowl, Jensen suddenly realizes that Wayne is the Batman. Unleashing his full fury, Jensen destroys the both of them in one mighty fire while Huntress, Batman's daughter, watches. The sad epilogue opens to a gorgeous splash of the assembled Justice Society of America with the Batsing bat signal ablaze in the sky behind them attending the funeral of police commissioner bruce wayne the batman of earth 2 helena his daughter 
and Dick Grayson, his ward, neither of whom are in costume, are both vis- uh, visibly shaken and weeping. And the only other reaction shot we really get in this one is strangely Dr. Fate. Um, I would have really liked to have seen Superman's reaction to all this. He's there, but we don't really ever get anything with, with Superman. Uh, anyhow, Wayne is buried and Dick swears to Helena that even though Bruce is now gone, the Batman will live again. But Helena is horrified to hear this and tells him, you can't. Uh, we can carry on his work as Robin and the Huntress, but the Batman is dead and only li- legends live forever. We close out the story with Dr. Fate, who's been creepily spying on this whole scene via his crystal ball and proclaiming, ah, they'll be all right. And asking the big question, where did Bill Jensen get the power to stop us and to slay the Batman? And this is a fantastic issue. Yes, it is. Very much so. No, like like I said, you can kind of tell this was all supposed to be All-Star Comics number 75. Right. Uh, Just to tell you, Jim Aparo inked himself on the cover. Sweet. And... This is probably the best Bruce Wayne has been portrayed since the revival. Because in the beginning, he was kind of a prick, but it all turns out he was under the uh, power of the Psycho Pirate. And we never really get to see much of him after that, uh, outside of the Huntress's origin, where he's not really at his best either. And here, we finally get to see... You know, the heroic Batman again. You know, the self-sacrificing Batman. You know, I've lost so much, but for one last time, I've got to go help my friends. And, uh, you know, I only have one basic nitpick. Well, two. The first is, God, I hope the Flash doesn't wake up on that ledge. Because that would suck. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet Jesus, no! Um, And... uh, (laughs) You know, if you're trying to hide <laughs> Bruce Wayne's secret identity, uh, one, how about not putting a bat on his uh, tombstone? And two, how about not everyone showing up in full fucking costume? <laughs> this uh, this actually comes up next issue, which okay. I, I was going to read because I thought we might knock out two shows today. Not going to happen, but... Uh... I thought we might, but I, I kind of just started to read the issue, and right off the bat, that is a story point for next issue. But yeah, I had the same note, basically, Good. which was, how the hell are they going to maintain Helena and Dick's secret identities now when they're clearly burying Bruce Wayne as the Batman? But uh, stay tuned. That gets resolved, sort of. But uh, no, no, really good story, really strong story, liked the epilogue. Uh, you know what would really have been cool is a Brave and the Bold issue with Batman teaming up with the Earth 2 Superman after Bruce Wayne's death. Yeah. And kind of, because we, we, we got that a little bit with the Huntress and Batman in a story we'll be discussing uh, sometime in the future. Right. But it would have been really cool, one, to see Jim Aparo draw the Earth 2 Superman because he did a really good job on the cover. And two, just to get Batman, Superman's reaction to, you know, that's his best friend. This is still an era where Superman and Batman were best freaking friends. Yeah, that's and, one of the reasons I was really kind of disappointed we didn't get a reaction from Superman to all of this. 
But uh, other than that, you know, this is really where Earth 2 came into its own, this story. You know, this is where the line of demarcation right. is marked, because this is where Paul Levitt said, hey, look, I killed the Batman. Anything can happen. Right. And that is awesome. And that is what made Earth 2 so freaking awesome. Absolutely. I had a couple quick things on this one. I mean, overall, I love this story, and I, I really don't want to do the typical pick it apart and, and look for every goofy little thing. And I'm sure that there's some stuff, but I really want it to, to stand on its own as what it is, just a, a really fantastic issue. But I had a couple quick things. on, uh, in the, Now, in the previous issue, page 40, panel 2, Jensen actually used his power to rock one of the towers of the Gotham Trade Center. Now, okay. when when he's taken out in this issue, or takes himself out, when he blows up, basically, shouldn't that tower just topple over? I mean, the base was completely unsettled and presumably destroyed. I mean, this is a building, after all. So rocking it like that, you would think, would pretty much destroy the, the foundation of it. So what exactly keeps the building standing after Jensen dies? Or, or whatever happens to Jensen. Pure willpower. <laughs> I guess. Well, I, I think we could have, you know, it would have been interesting to see, like, uh, like Green Lantern having to hold the building up or something. Like, which which yeah. actually maybe that does happen because we literally go from the death of Batman to the epilogue where he's being buried. So maybe there is a little bit of action in the gutters that we just weren't privy to or something. Page 16. Um... I love this. Now, you, you know what a Robin fan I am and what a Dick Grayson fan I am, but I just have to ask, is, is Dick stupid? You know, there's the part where he, he delivers that great speech, you know. He says, uh, Bruce Wayne may have given his life for Gotham, but the Batman will live on. And we get Helena with this horrified look on her face. She goes, oh, no, Dick, you can't. And he says, uh, I don't understand, Helena. You mean... You want to be the Batman? I'm thinking, no, you dumbass. So weird is he looked like Donny Osmond in that panel. Oh, yeah, he does, actually. <laughs> That's funny. I do like the fact that when we see the shadow of the Batman looking onto his children, he's laughing at them. Um, probably he's because of what Dick, smiling. Just, he's probably just because of what dead. Dick just said. <laughs> like, <laughs> you idiot. Ghosts yes, are always <laughs> ghosts are always happy to be dead. Haven't you seen Star Wars? They're smiling at the end of Return of the Jedi. Yay, we're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there's an Answer Man column in this. Yeah, I saw that. Uh, you know, it was it was like, hey, well, maybe this isn't a complete waste uh, of our time. Sweet. Though, though I doubt people uh, would would uh, would argue that point. With me <laughs> I'm sure they think this is a complete waste of our time. No, we got Superman face. Uh, excuse me, we got a Daily Planet page. Super Friends face death in the time trap with the Time Trapper fighting uh, the Super Friends, which is kind of silly. We also get a Hembeck. Yeah, strip, which is awesome. Um, you do Hembeck and I'll do the answer man. <laughs> so it's Hawkman talking on the phone. I'm, I'm, I think to Adam strange. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Anyways, he goes, yes, Adam, the old battle axe is in pretty good shape. And Hawk, 
Hawk Woman comes in and goes, Carter, how dare you talk about me like that? I er, was speaking of our collection of ancient weapons. Oh. And then he goes, phew. <laughs> I love it. I love Hembeck. All right. And ask the answer, man. We've got some uh, really keen questions here. We've got, is Firestorm going to join the JLA as mentioned in Firestorm number two? And the answer is not in the near future. Which is a bald face lie. Because not long after this, he actually does join the Justice League. Yes, he does. He says, who are the first JLA members? We got Superman, Batman, The Flash, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, and The Martian Manhunter. Is there a chance for a Swamp Thing revival? And the answer is, the Marshland Monster returns with Superman in DC Comics Presents number 8. And about, uh, what is about three years later? What what year was this again? 79? Yeah, about three years later, uh, he actually does uh, make a, have a revival in Saga, the Swamp Thing. Hey, where can people hear about that series, uh, Scott? I wouldn't know. <laughs> no, actually, we cover that on Comics Monthly Monday on Two True Freaks on the third uh, Monday of every month. Uh, let's see, we got another question here. Uh, blah blah blah. Where is it? Oh, here it what is. Happened? What what happened to Chemical King and Matter Eater Lad? And the answer is nothing. They still pop up in Legion Adventures from time to time. Where did Star Sapphire first appear? Carol Ferris began the be, uh, became the bejeweled baddie in Green Lantern number 16. And if you ever want to hear a really funny take on that uh, issue, go over to www.earth2.net, earth-2.net, uh, and listen. find the episode of DJ's Comics Cavalcade, hosted by Thomas DJ, when he talks about that issue. It is freaking hysterical. Oh, I'll have to listen to that. <laughs> Uh, here's another false answer. He says, will Robin ever have his own magazine? And the answer is probably not. But he's got his own feature in every issue of Detective Comics. Now, granted, it was many years down the road, but Robin... Of and a different Robin. Yeah, and a different Robin. Yeah, that's true. He says, what is Earth B? Earth B is a world where all the stories which don't fit into our regular continuity take place. I love that. Yes. Where can I find the origin of the Justice Society? In DC's special number 29, which we just talked about a few uh, episodes ago. Do you think Adam Batman West, Burt Robin Ward, Linda Wonder Woman Carter, Christopher uh, Superman Reeve, and Nick Aquaman Nolte will ever join forces for a Super Friends movie? And the answer is... We doubt it. But when did Nick Nolte ever play the King of the Sea? I love that. <laughs> now, the King of the Sea is going to be, like, arrested for drunk driving charges. There you go. Horrible photo taken. <laughs> <laughs> Any plans to publish Sandman number 7 or Dingbats numbers 2 and 3? Not in the near future, though the Sandman issue would have appeared in Commandy if that title hadn't been discontinued. And I, I wonder if uh, any of those issues wound up in Cancelled Comics Cavalcade. That I do not the know. Dingbats of Danger Street. <laughs> wow, Jack Kirby was high. <laughs> have you ever seen the Dingbats of Danger Street? Uh... I'm not sure. Is that the one with the the little black kid wearing the flippers? Flip a dipper or some shit no, like that? No, that was the Newsboy Legion. Oh, okay. No, I yeah. guess I haven't. 
No, it was another team of young boys. Jack hmm. Kirby really kind of was a one-note wonder in that department, wasn't he? Hmm. I'm going to create Galact- Galactus and then create a bunch of teams of small boys. I gotta, I gotta say, and I, I know I'm risking once again, you know, tons of hate mail on this sort of thing, but uh, wow, the Aquaman art is a huge step down from Don Newton, who is just the awesome, to Don Heck, who is just. Shut up. Not one of my favorites. Although, you know, the inking, who's the inker on this? Because the inks aren't bad. The inks actually really, maybe that was Don Heck's problem. Maybe he just didn't didn't have the proper inker. Oh, it's Bob Smith. I like Bob Smith a lot. It's it's not as bad as some Heck I've seen. Some of it is, uh, whew, like well, that well, late, late Wonder Woman too. stuff. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, love this issue. fan frickin' Fantastic. I'm not sure what else I've got to say on that. Yeah, I guess we can move right into kind of catching up on elsewhere in the DC universe. Yeah, we we look now at comics that were on sale July 1978. Now, we actually got called out on this in in an email. Was it an email or was it a – maybe somebody PM'd me, I forget. But anyway, somebody or other – I want to say it was Jose Rivera, but I'm not sure – said, uh, hey, what happened to uh, Elsewhere in the DC Universe last issue? You guys didn't do it. Oh, just relax, relax. We're going to do it. So picking up from where we left off, we're, we're going to bridge the gap and then also cover uh, what happened in the, uh, the months of the issues we just talked about. So Probably not as extensively as we usually do, but No, still. this is true. What do we got? What do we got that looks cool? Well, for one thing, I noticed right off the bat in this month that we got a quadruple helping of Jonah Hex. Because we got Jonah Hex issues 17 and 18 with some gorgeous uh, Garcia Lopez covers on them. But also Jonah Hex appeared in Justice League of America numbers 159 and 160. Yes, you heard me right. Justice League of America. And uh, we will be covering those issues here shortly in the future. Indeed. Um, you got... DC Comics Presents number three with uh, another Jose Luis Garcia Lopez cover of Superman Adam Strange. You have Action Comics number 488, which is the introduction of Microwave Man. That's that one I was talking about, yeah. Yeah. Um, Airwave. That was my my introduction to Airwave. Got another issue of Steel, which is cool. We've got Green Lantern number 109, which starts an Alan Scott backup feature, Mm -hmm. which we'll be covering down the road. Batman Family number 20 has a pretty cool cover with Ragman, uh, guaranteeing that my friend Chip from Titans will be owning that book at some point. (laughs) He collects all things Ragman. And Firestorm number 5 with, what is that villain's name? Why can I never remember it? Multiplex. Oh, Multiplex. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. (laughs) Cineplex. Yeah. movie man. I say. Um... (laughs) The Batman cover is kind of cool for 305 as well. Yeah. It's a Jim Aparo one. Yeah. Uh, which has Batman swinging and showing us his crotch, which, you know, whatever. You know, if he wants to be a sicko. Who is the artist on that Wonder Woman cover? That's really nice. I like that. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Sweet. Let me see. There was something else here. Oh, that uh, that Superman issue. I need to reread that because I remember really liking that story as a kid. It has something to do with some weird, like, I think it's a Kryptonian life form or some weird, like, mimicky thing. 
It's almost like a like a Venom for Superman type of thing, if I remember right. But yeah, I need to reread that. Sweet. Yeah. All right, going on to the next month here. Holy crap! <laughs> uh oh, what? Go to the next month and see how many covers there are comparatively. Is this the beginning of the uh, implosion? Yeah, the implosion had. Ha- oh shit! Yeah, there's nothing. There's uh, we got Batman and Green Arrow 14, in. Uh, wait, seventeen covers total. Wow, <gasps> one of the coolest comics in my collection. I would I would say DC Special Series number sixteen, the Jonah Hex Spectacular. Spoiler alert! If you don't want to know this, just cover your ears for a second. This is the issue that reveals how Jonah Hex died. And it's a fantastic story. Check it out. It can be had on the cheap, believe it or not. Or at least it used to be before uh, the revival of Hex. That? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, with the the movie coming along, maybe not so cheap. But uh, still a fantastic (laughs) issue. That Action Comics issue, number 489, starts a 10-issue run of Action Comics leading up to 500. And if you want some good Bronze Age Superman stories, read that entire run. It is absolutely awesome. I love it. It's a great cover uh, with Krypton Dies Again. It's uh, by Ross Andrew, who does a pretty good Superman. And this is a neat little multi-issue story. That uh, that I really dig a lot better than the Superman from this, where he, you know, I met the enemy and it is me with another Ross Andrew cover. But no, seriously, I picked these up about 15 years ago before I was really seriously collecting pre-crisis Superman, and mm-hmm. it and it is awesome. I see here Adventure Comics 460, which is the issue before the one that we just started reviewing. Um, actually, Jay Garrick does appear in the very beginning of the Flash tale in that one, but it's nothing of consequence. I mean, it's yeah. literally they're they're racing, and then he's like, "Okay, Barry, I'll see you later." And the, so that's that's the the <laughs> what that amounts to in that one. All right, uh, moving. we got Superman Family one ninety two, where Speedy pushes Smack onto Jimmy Olsen. <laughs> Underrated story, I think. So, ooh, next month we've got. I love this one too. Uh, DC Comics presents number four with Superman and the Metal Men. Yes, and I think that might have actually been my first Metal Men story. I could be wrong about that, but I think it may have been. <laughs> well, Scott, it all comes back to our first meeting. Superman number three thirty. Oh my God! Yep, you're right. Holy that was the cow! Issue I selected for my first appearance on Back to the Bins. Oh, those many months ago. Wow, everything's That's, cyclical, man. It's weird, isn't it? Now that cover of Action Comics number four ninety with Superman flying across uh, over the city with his eyes a burning. Another Ross Andrew cover. This is the one you will see in the movie Lost Boys, and. Corey Haim is picking up this this issue and saying, you know, it wouldn't be in this issue because Red Kryptonite hasn't even been introduced. And everything he's saying does not match in any way possible (laughs) the covers he is talking about. It has pissed me off for years. Oh, come on. That story happens on Earth V, Earth Earth Vampire, so you got to cut him some slack. (laughs) And you outlived him, so, you know, count your lucky stars, so... Well, I didn't do as much smack as he did, so there you go. That's not what I heard, but anyway. 
Oh yeah, because 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 <laughs> my weight says yeah that man does heroin exactly. <laughs> All right, what else have we got here? I really like that cover on Green Lantern one eleven. You know, I've got a very lengthy run of Green Lantern from this era that I don't even know how I acquired it. Just by default, buying collections, I guess. And wouldn't you know it, the only gap that's in there are the the uh, Alan Scott <laughs> issues. It's like, son of a bitch. God hates you. I guess. Ooh, I also like, uh, I'm sorry, I keep flipping ahead. I'm I'm on next month. Well, let's go. Comics presents number five with Superman and Aquaman, and uh, uh, Ross Andrew cover. Yeah, love that. Love and you have the uh, the third part to the Action Comics story where Brainiac was the villain. Again, really cool. Check it out. Oh yeah, versus Hawkman. I remember that one. Got Superman three thirty one, the first appearance of the Master Jailer, who I always thought was a really cool villain. Yeah. Uh, despite his kind of goofy look, it was a guy that was, uh, well, let's just call a spade a spade. He was obsessed with Lana Lang. I like what they and, did with him a couple years ago in, you know, in recent Superman comics. They brought him back and uh, and made him. Yeah, right around ninety five, they they well they nineties nineties'd him up by giving him like a black leather jacket and sunglasses. But yeah, he was, he was really cool. It was, uh, yeah. it was an interesting, interesting take on the character. Uh, but no, I, I read these several years ago that, that run of Superman. And I really liked that story. It was, this was a really good time for the Superman books because Julia Schwartz, well, they didn't, didn't do a whole lot to like publish Superman specials and stuff around this time leading up to the movie, the stories in both titles and in DC comics presents were all firing on all cylinders Yeah, and just leading to a really good era that would end sadly a couple years into the eighties, which is probably why you got John Byrne and the man of steel, but right <laughs> still really cool stuff. Really awesome stuff. We got going ahead here. Hang on. Let me refresh. Cause my, did Ross Andrew draw every cover in the DC universe <laughs> at this point? Love that cover to Batman 308 with uh, with Mr. Freeze. That's really cool. My name is Freeze. Oh. Then you got to ruin it with that. Oh, oh, you're making my head hurt. Hey, that's, my, that's my Arnie impersonation. <laughs> Shut up. Oh, another, uh, another awesome DC Comics Presents with uh, Superman and Green Lantern. Uh-huh. Oh, in the next month? Yes, I'm sorry. I keep scooping. That's okay. You skipped ahead. That's cool. Oh, we got that. Oh, I love Brave and the Bull number 147, where Batman teams up with Supergirl. I love that cover. Yes. Oh, yes. man, that is awesome. That's a good story, too. It's a lot to like in this era. There really is. There are some great ones. I love that Scalp Hunter picture. That same picture... Or, or you know derivations of of a theme, you you could link together so many different comics with that because there's a Jonah Hex one where he's falling off a tower. There's a Further Adventures of Indiana Jones one where he's fighting a giant and getting knocked off a tower. There's like there's a bunch of them exactly with that same sort of pose: a big that, tall tower and somebody knocking the hero off of it. That weird War Tales is a really cool cover. 
kind of creepy. God, oh, yeah. I'm surprised that went through. Oh, that World's Finest, number 255. I remember I had it back in my pre pre-collecting days. I had a, just a random DC issue from around this time. And it had ads for that World's Finest cover with that evil-looking Batman type yeah. character. I think uh, that's the one I'm watching on eBay right now. I hope it's ended by the time this episode comes out so somebody doesn't outbid me on it. But no, just just a really cool collection of uh, covers and stories from this time period. You know, it may have been the DC implosion, but that doesn't mean that the uh, the stuff wasn't really freaking awesome. Well, in a lot of ways, all that really means is that they pared down to the essentials, and now you've got the top talent, you know, on the books. So yes, that, that gives you. Some really awesome cover. Man, I love that House of Mystery cover with that dude versus the giant freaking spider. That's free that's Mike Kaluta, isn't it? That's freaky looking. Where is House of Mystery? Uh it's almost at the bottom. It's the next to the bottom row, raid uh third title over. Oh yeah, okay. I see. <laughs> if I relax yes, it was Mike Kaluta. If I relax my eyes, I can see the sailboat. <laughs> so yeah. Ah, uh, well, that's all I got for this uh, for this time out. What about you? Does that take us all the way to? Yep, next month is. Uh... Oh, wait, we got one more month to do. I'm sorry, you're right. We got that Adventure Comics number four sixty two. Um... See that one on? Oh yeah, there it is. Okay, it's the first one. Uh... Oh, the Flash two seventy one. I do yes. not have a lot of issues of of this era of Flash, but I do have that one where all those rocks and shit are sticking out of his body, and he's like. How am I going to explain this to Iris? I love that. That's a great cover. You can really tell that this was like four months before Superman the movie came out because you had Superman and Red Tornado and DC Comics Presents with a uh, Dick Dillon cover. Whatever. That's Um, the first one since number one that I don't have. I don't even think I've even read that issue. So that's my first gap in that collection is that cover right there. He's front and center on the Justice League of America cover. You've got uh, Superman Family number 194. You've got Famous First Edition C61 with Superman number one. You have Action Comics number 493. You've got Superman number 333. Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes number 249. And something that is in the drawer next to me right now, all new Collector's Edition C62. The Superman the Movie Oversized Treasury Edition. Mm-hmm. You know why you got that, Scott? Know why I got it? No, you don't. You know why we got that? You know why that's what they put out as the Superman the movie tie-in? Uh, I, I, I don't know. Mario Puzo had it in his contract that if there was any that's adaptations right. of his story, that he would get a cut. That's Therefore, right. you didn't get a comic book adaptation, nor did you get a novelization. Both of which are really freaking sad to me. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen a novelization of Superman. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, because that's the whole reason I ever bought um, Last Son of Krypton because I thought it was the novelization of the movie, and it turned out to be a fantastic book. Don't get me wrong. Oh yeah, it's uh, a great book, but fooled you. Yeah, exactly. You know, I'm surprised though that all these years later there still hasn't been an adaptation. You know, a comic book adaptation. Still have to give them money. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the closest thing we got was uh, one of the four pre-Superman Returns, those tie-in issues that they did. I can't remember which one it is, but one of the four of those pretty much is 
up to a point, you know, it's like from the beginning of that movie up to, I can't remember where the story ends in that one. It's not the entire movie. Yeah. But man, it's, it's pretty much scene for scene and note for note for a while there. And it's beautiful. Well worth owning, whether you hate that movie or not, you know, that, those, that one issue, whichever one it is, is pretty cool. Well, let me ask you this question, though, to kind of tie it back into your Two True Freaks Star Trek Monthly Mondays. Mm-hmm. When you guys are talking about, you know, the, the recent IDW adaptation of Star Trek Two, would it be the same or would it be an artist just drawing the movie frame for frame? You know, that that's that's the tough thing right there. But uh, you still want to find out. <laughs> I would still like to find out, depending on who you could get to do it, because there's there's only certain talents I'd want to see on a book like that. And sadly, it probably wouldn't be the same because it wouldn't have the flavor of the era. Because I think yeah. back in the day, if it was going to happen when it happened, I think the ideal person to have done it then was Garcia Lopez. Uh-huh. And I think that that would have been freaking spectacular. Because I, you, you need go no further than that issue of Superman with the uh, the four-armed ghost alien. And there's a scene at the beginning of that book. It starts out where Superman and Lois are having dinner and they go out on the dance floor. And the next thing you know, they're actually dancing in the sky, all drawn by by Garcia Lopez. And he's so obviously playing off of the look and feel of Superman the movie that that's as close as we ever got. And it's beautiful. But they probably would have gotten Swan to do it. And that's not a, a slam against Swan, yeah. but he, that's probably because he did three and four. Yeah, but I, yeah, you're right. I'd I'd love to see Jose Lariz, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez take a crack at it today. That would be the only reason to do it. If is if he was gonna, him, I'm sorry, is to get him to do it. If he was gonna do it today, then I I'd, I'd want to see it be more of a jam piece. And uh, okay. I would love to see it be uh, like like Lopez uh, penciling it and like Byrne inking it or something something like or some Butler. combination or Terry Austin Rick yeah Rich Buckler would be good um, yeah there's there's a bunch of guys that I, I'd still like to see but you know, but classic guys and that's that's my worry is that it wouldn't be classic guys it would be you know the hot new flavor of the week artist and it, it wouldn't would be the same. For- it would make for an uneven story, but yeah, have a chapter done by Lopez and a chapter done by Byrne and a chapter done by Buckler and a chapter done by Adams. That would be cool. That would be very cool. We'd buy five each. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last yeah. one here uh, that I wanted to comment on was uh, Uh-oh, Weird Western going, Tales. Yeah, I was about to say, are you going where I'm going with yeah. Weird Western Tales? You got Scalp Hunter. And he's in an arm wrestling match with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I love it. Yes. <laughs> I love it. Oh, man. That is like made of wind. You know, there might be, you know, I keep hearing this thing about how monkeys sell comics. I'm telling you what sells comics for Scott is Abraham Lincoln. You put Abraham Abraham Lincoln on the cover, I'm, I'm probably going to buy it. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, but okay. These stories, Adventure Comics number 461 and 462, have been reprinted in Justice Society, Volume 2, Trade Paperback from 2007. 
Thank you for listening to another exciting episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America, hosted by Scott H. Gardner and Michael R. Bailey. If you like this show, check out Back to the Bins, where Mike and I talk about random back issues from the past. You can find that at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com. Scott has another podcast that he hosts with his childhood friend and former personal masseuse and fry cook to Oprah Winfrey, Chris Honeywell, called Two True Freaks, which, like Tales and Back to the Bins, can be found at www.twotruefreaks.lipson.com. Mike has a few other podcasts that he either hosts or co-hosts because he loves the sound of his own voice as well. The first is Views from the Longbox, which is Mike's solo show and can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Then there's From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which Mike hosts with Jeffrey Taylor, which can be found at both www.supermanhomepage.com and www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and I have gigantic egos, and we love to hear from the listeners. You can reach the show by writing to Tales of the JSA at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and come back next week for another installment of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. Mm-hmm.